Uh, what I want to show in this study of revival, if you really understand revival, if revival was in this church right now, it wouldn't be that you would have trouble getting 50 people to come here to have fellowship. You wouldn't be able to get them to go home at night. When the holy manifest presence of the Spirit of God is in an assembly and people are under awakening, they want to be where everybody else is under awakening or getting help. They don't want to go home because they're way, way too anxious. You consider all the things I've read about the revivals that happened during the First Great Awakening, and somebody used the expression that the people from the church were staring out of their windows at night, not able to sleep for fear that Jesus Christ would come in his glory and they would not be prepared to meet him. And I think the same guy said that when the people left the congregation where the revival was going on, he said there was a dreadful sounding in their ears or the wrath of God. God and they desperately wanted to be saved. It was an amazing time, but this history that I'm talking about here has been forgotten. It is amazing that Nettleton lived right before Finney. He interacted with Finney and he was not fond of Finney, but Finney was the second most requested evangelist only to Whitfield. Nettleton, whose conversions I have a lot more faith and conviction were sincere, is called the forgotten evangelist. Mm. And yet, Tyler estimates there were probably 30,000 people converted under his ministry in these times of revival. But I want to, before I talk about what happened in these revivals, just give a little history of his life, a little biography. He was born in North Killingworth, Connecticut, April 21st, 1783, the same day on which the birth of Samuel J. Mills occurred. And we don't know that name. Even if Michael heard it, he probably forgot it. But Samuel Mills was one of a number of young men who were going to Williams College. They would meet together for prayer for revival and so on. And their goal was to pray for missions, which was pretty ambitious. If you consider that no American missionary yet had gone from our shores to a foreign soil this early on. Well, Mills was one of the leaders of a number of young men that got caught in a thunderstorm and they hid under some kind of loft protection of a haystack. And while they were protected from the elements, they poured out their heart to God for missions. And in history, they're meeting together in prayer for missions was called the Haystack Revival. And these men who were in this group later on ended up going to Andover Theological Seminary, which had just been started. And Samuel Mills met uh, two people that he would be friends with for life, Asahel Nettleton, who we are about to talk about, and Adoniram Judson, who was a Congregationalist turned Baptist, who was the first American missionary to get to India and then later to Burma. So this would have been about 11, uh, 1812. And so Samuel Mills However, providentially was hindered if it was financial. I don't remember if he was sick. He never did. He never did get to join the people that uh, went on this missionary boat that was headed out to India. And one young couple that went out with them, they never even survived. But in the context, Mills is important because Asahel Nettleton, and it's really important that you understand this because you realize that Nettleton was an itinerant preacher, but not by choice. The reason he became an itinerant preacher is because he went from place to place and discovered from feedback that his labors were being blessed. But Nettleton never gave up the desire to be a missionary. It was really, really within his heart, but his Father first had died and later on his mother and he had to care for the farm and help out a 
brother and he never financially was in a position where he could finish his studies and become a missionary. While he was a child, he was occasionally the subject of religious impressions. That means he just came under conviction through the family devotions or whatever. At one time in particular, he was standing out in the field and looking at the setting sun, he was powerfully impressed with the thought that he and all men must die. In the blessings of this general outpouring of the Spirit, North Killingworth, Connecticut, shared. There was a revival that came to his hometown. A narrative of the revival in this town was published in the fourth and fifth volumes of the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine. I showed you a picture of mine. But they published the biography, the conversion of Nettleton, and maybe his family took the magazine. They had subscribed to it, and he read his story in there, and he said that it wasn't exactly how it happened. A few individuals whose conversion was considered particularly interesting were requested by their pastor to give him in writing account of their religious exercises. In other words, tell us about your conversion. Asa Hell Nettleton was one of the number in his account with that of two or three others is incorporated in a primitive narrative and is as follows. On the night of the annual Thanksgiving in the fall of 1800, he attended a ball. He wasn't converted yet. He was going somewhere for entertainment. The next morning while alone and thinking with pleasure on the scenes of the preceding night and of the manner in which he had proposed to spend the next day in company with some of his young companions, a thought suddenly rushed upon his mind. We must all die and go to the judgment and with what feeling shall we then reflect upon these scenes this thought was for the moment overwhelming and it left an impression on his mind which he could not get rid of he could not efface when nettleton first became anxious in other words he was awakened like christian with a burden on his back respecting the salvation of his soul he had not as has been remarked any very just conceptions of the depravity of his heart yet he was sensible that he was not in a safe condition he knew that he needed something which he did not possess to prepare him for heaven He had a general vague idea that he was a sinner, but he saw not the fountain of iniquity within him. During this period, he read Jonathan Edwards' narrative of the revival of religion in Northampton, which we have quoted, and the life of David Brainerd. These serve very much to deepen the conviction of his utterly lost condition. The preaching which he heard from time to time also greatly distressed him. As he says in his narrative, every sermon condemned him. Nothing gave him any relief. And he says in his narrative, every sermon condemned him. One day while alone in the field engaged in prayer, and this is his own version of the story, his heart rose against God. Now he is under awakening. And his heart rose against God. Well, why would that happen in awakening. Usually it happens because they're awakened for maybe an extended time and they put on a self-righteous effort. They begin to pray, they begin to read, they begin to use the means, and then God doesn't seem to hear their cries for mercy. And their heart rises against them as being very unfair to them not hearing their prayers. That's what David Brainerd went through as well. Then the words of the apostle, the carnal mind is enmity against God, came to his mind with such overwhelming power as to deprive him of strength, and he fell prostrate to the earth. The doctrines of the gospel, particularly the doctrines of divine sovereignty and election, were sources of great distress to him. But although he enjoyed great peace of mind, he never expressed a very high degree of confidence yet that he was a child of God. He had such a deep and abiding sense of the deceitfulness of the human heart and of the danger of self-deception that not only at this period, but ever afterwards, he was exceedingly cautious in expressing his belief that he was accepted of God. Now, it's interesting, and it could be temperamental. It could be intense introspection and a uh, 
inversion that he never throughout his life would you say that Asa Hull Nettleton had a real high assurance of salvation and probably because he examined his frames, he examined his fruits so exceedingly that he didn't quite grasp the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. However, that assurance is not of the essence of faith, and he still was converted and became one of the most astute observers of awakened people, people during a revival seeking to be saved, how to counsel them in a very short time, listen to what they had to say and be able to discern at what point that they were in and how to properly counsel them. And I attribute that to the fact that Nettleton was under awakening for 10 months At another time, he said, the most that I have ever ventured to say respecting myself is that I think it is possible I may get to heaven. It was always painful to him to hear persons express great confidence of their interest in the divine favor, unless they were persons of eminent piety. Well, that could be fair, charitable. And people have taken that to an extreme that they think that the way is so narrow and so few people are saved that unless they give a satisfactory testimony as to what happened to them, people stand in doubt of them. And God has never given us any rules by which we are to judge others confidently whether they have passed from death unto life. He's only given us the rules that are necessary for us as a church to protect ourselves in the judgment of charity to receive people in on their profession. And if we don't see anything questionable about it, and they seem to be walking according to the light of the gospel, but we're never given so much light of anybody's heart around us that we can, by listening to their testimony, determine whether or not they have passed from death to life, whether they are converted or not. And I emphasize this because some people who were used during the first great awakening were under the deception that they could. And one of them was James Davenport. And Davenport's testimony and what he did as an itinerant preacher in the first great awakening had ramifications on the ministry of Asahel Nettleton in the 1815s, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Because Davenport got a following and these people were under the same delusion that they could tell whether a person was converted or not based on their testimony. And these men would go into these churches and if they had the idea falsely that the pastor didn't seem to be converted, they would turn the congregation against their pastor. People would be leaving these churches. These people got a following and It wasn't until six pastors in the Boston area finally got Davenport to settle down and they convinced him that he was under the delusion of the devil. And Davenport printed a retraction after he was broken for seeing that he was not being led by God, but by impressions on the imaginations that were not of the Holy Spirit, that the havoc that he had wreaked in Connecticut and the other places surrounding this area became known as the Waste places. So when Nettleton would go into these places early on in his ministry, the churches were already hurting because of the damage that had been done by the false zeal of James Davenport and his followers. That's very important in the background because Nettleton observed what he had heard. He read Edwards to a great degree. And I think Nettleton even learned from some of the things that were maybe aberrations under the first great awakening. He was very, very sharp to know what to do not to repeat the things in revivals that he saw going on. The other advantage that he had was he never got married. So he could go from place to place. And this is where Nettleton's ministry to me was more sound than Whitfield's. And that is Whitfield was the more powerful 
preacher as far as his communication. But Whitfield did not stay at any place for an extended length of time. Nettleton was helpful as an evangelist, as an itinerant, and as somebody used in a revival because Nettleton knew that he should not leave a church just upon their own efforts without a pastor, but he stayed there to make sure that if the churches were still affected by the waste places, he wanted to see them grounded and settled, and he wanted to see them established before he would move on. So Nettleton's reading the magazine, the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, of the operations of the London Missionary Society in England, these awaken in his breast a strong desire to become a missionary to the heathen. I had already marked remarked that Samuel Mills and Asahel Nettleton were born on the same day, it is a remarkable fact that their new and their spiritual birth occurred very nearly at the same time. That the conversion of both was signally marked and that from the commencement of their Christian course they seem to have been imbued with the same spirit, missionary zeal, the desire that people would come to Christ and to have devoted themselves to the same employment. So, He's still struggling financially. His mom and his dad by this time had passed away. So in the winter, he taught school and spent his evenings in study. So he taught school to get what little money he could to help out. Thus, in the course of two or three years, with very little instruction and while laboring most of the time on the farm, except when engaged in school keeping, he mastered the preparatory studies and he entered into the freshman class in Yale College. And I told you Dwight was the president of the college and had a really profound influence on Nettleton. And one time, Timothy Dwight said he had an eye for discernment and saw giftedness in Nettleton. And he said, someday that guy's going to do great things for God. But interestingly, Nettleton was more close and confirmed in the Westminster Confession on chapter 6, same as our confession, on the fall of man, the imputation of Adam's sin, and on the depravity of man and the effects of his fall even than Timothy Dwight. There started to be a falling away in what became New England theology, New England Calvinism, and Nettleton stayed pretty solid during all of this time. A Reverend Jonathan, he had a classmate named Philander Parmelli, and that will come up later. And the Reverend Jonathan Lee said, I was a classmate with Mr. Nettleton during the two last years of our college life, and I roomed with him through the junior year. Having entered one year before him and thus belonging to the next preceding class until the expiration of my sophomore and his freshman year, and then being kept out of college and broken off from my studies by a severe malady for one whole year, I formed but little acquaintance with him, Nettleton, till I returned again to college and joined his class at the beginning of their junior year, October 1807. He says, I was standing in a melancholy mood in the south door of the then middle of old college. So he comes back to college. He doesn't even have a roommate. He's melancholy. He's probably homesick. And he was disheartened at the loss of a year in standing. He was a stranger to this class, this Jonathan Lee. And with no room or roommate engaged, reluctant to make application to anyone, supposing their arrangements in this respect had already been made, he supposed everybody else already has a classmate. Asahel Nettleton passed by, seemed attracted by my somber attitude and downcast aspect, and he approached him, kindly inquiring whether I had obtained a roommate, and learning by my reply that I had not offered himself to room with me. So he's given this report because he got to know Nettleton up close. Bennett Tyler in his life in Nettleton says of Nettleton at this time, the state of Nettleton's health through a part of the year when he roomed with Jonathan Lee was much impaired and in connection with this he passed through a protracted season of deep mental anxiety and depression in the spring of 1808 in which he greatly questioned the genuineness of his Christian experience. So severe were his mental trails of this nature as to unfit him for study. He's under such duress, still lacking assurance, still somewhat under awakening. He could not pay attention to to his studies. 
For some time, and he was excused and permitted to return home on account of the state of his health. Before returning home, he came to Timothy Dwight for instruction and counsel, and Dwight directed him to the perusal of Jonathan Edwards' book on uh, the religious affections and loaned him a copy. Also, Dwight gave him his manuscript sermons on the evidences of regeneration, and Dwight's sermons on uh, systematic theology comprised five volumes. They were sermons, and he has some excellent things on regeneration. And I remember reading a book years ago called uh, Lecture, or Letters to a Daughter by William Sprague. And Sprague said to his daughter, given her a reading list, you need to have Dwight's sermons on systematic theology, which shows how much in demand they were. But Middleton passed through such agony of spirit as was suited to awaken the liveliest sympathy in those who could best understand and appreciate the nature of his distress. The all-absorbing question resting on his mind by day and by night, mingled with many sighs, tears, and groans, was, Am I a child of God? At this time in the winter of 1807, a revival of religion began in New Haven. So when they say New Haven, remember they're referring to Yale. Yale is in New Haven. New Haven College, Yale College, it's the same thing. The first subjects of it among the students were in the freshman class. Nettleton was no indifferent spectator. He was absorbed in watching what's going on during this revival, very interested in what is going on, and was among the first to discover indications of special religious impressions, and he would seek out persons in a state of religious anxiety. There was one case in this revival, and I hinted to on this before, this is the story though, which awakened very general sympathy into which I shall advert for a moment because it shows how God sometimes makes use of the sufferings of one to subdue the obstinacy of another. A member of one of the lower classes became deeply anxious for his spiritual welfare. A revival is going on. These students are starting to be awakened. And what's interesting to know in the background because of the infidelity that had come into the states, Yale in 1807 was not in a good way. When Dwight got there, 1799 or whatever, and remember, Yale College was used to prepare men for the ministry, of 110 students, maybe 10 had any kind of a real confession and many were infidels and they called themselves by infidel names you know out of derision and so on but a member of one of the lower classes became deeply anxious for his spiritual welfare he was indeed the first person in college probably who was under conviction of sin as the work went on as a revival went on Others who were awakened at a much later period were apparently brought into the kingdom and were rejoicing in hope while he was left in the bitterness of despair with the arrows of the Almighty drinking up his spirit. Psalm 32, I just narrated that by Calvin yesterday. It's, it's a blessing. You know, my bones are just waxed, broken it felt like within me because I kept silent before the Lord. The sorrow and anxiety and conviction drinking up the spirit of David. His health, the student, rapidly declined under his sufferings. He was confined in a great measure to his bed and it was feared that with his feeble constitution he must soon sink under the weight of his distress, his conviction of sin, unless relief should soon be obtained. In an adjoining room there lived an avowed disbeliever in spiritual religion who denied the reality of a divine influence on revivals and from the commencement of the present work had regarded those who were concerned in it with scorn, derision, scorn. So a Christian friend who knew his sentiments, he knew what he was thinking, what his sentiments were towards Christianity, asked him to visit the sufferer. Come here. You think this is 
false? You think this is a fiction? Come here and see this guy under distress. Is this a fiction, the conviction that this man is going through? I ask you, be honest. As you look at him and he's terrified and he's sinking almost under the weight of this, is this a fiction? He's asking this professing atheist and he led him toward the bedside. The atheist, a disbeliever, stood for a moment looking at the emaciated form before him. He listened to the exclamations which told the distress and horror of an awakened conscience and then turning around went back to his room to weep there under a sense of his own sin. Not long after, to the wonder of all of his companions, it was said of him as of Saul of Tarsus, behold he prayeth. He afterwards listened to this, this atheist who came in and saw this guy under duress and went to his room and weep and cry out to God, entered the ministry and devoted himself to the cause of missions and has been for more than 20 years an active and successful laborer upon the heathen ground. So, back to the story of the distressed man in agony. A few Christian friends lingered about the bed of the agonized and despairing sinner, and many were the prayers offered to God that the balm of Gilead might be applied to his wounded spirit. At length, a messenger was dispatched to summon the president. Go get Timothy Dwight. Bring him in here. He needs to talk to this guy. He's really really in bad shape. As it seemed to those in attendance that unless relief were had, death must close the scene. They feared he was going to die under it. The hour was late, but he promptly attended the call and came emphatically as one sent of God, as a bearer of good tidings of great joy. For a short time he seemed overwhelmed, so deeply did he share in the agony of the agonized. At length, however, taking a seat by the bedside, he, Timothy Dwight, gradually directed the anxious inquirer to the divine sufficiency and infinite fullness of the Lord Jesus, recited the invitations of the gospel, and then followed his paternal counsel by prayer to God. That prayer, it is believed, was heard, and the words which he spoke were a healing balm from on high. His sweet serenity seemed to still over the agitated sinner's mind. President Timothy Dwight is reported to have said of Nettleton as he observed him. Nettleton was in the next room crying out to God to have mercy on this awakened sinner. And Dwight, as he observed Nettleton, said, while Dwight, or while Nettleton was a member of the college, he will make one of the most useful men this country has ever seen. This is one of among many instances of the sagacity of that great man. So, After receiving his license to preach, Nettleton refused to consider himself a candidate for settlement. Why? He still, his heart was still on the mission field. Because he intended and expected to engage in the missionary service as soon as the providence of God should prepare the way. He chose, therefore, to commence his labors in waste places, remember that term, and in some of the most desolate parts of the Lord's vineyard. He accordingly went to the eastern part of Connecticut on the borders of Rhode Island. Here he preached for a few months in several places which had long been destitute of settled pastors. The pastors were driven out. The people were leaving. But they had been made desolate more than half a century before when Davenport was going from church to church. He says, by the measures of which James Davenport and other evangelists of that, he has often spoken with deep interest of this period of his labors, Nettleton reflecting on it, and of the use which the information he at that time obtained. He was observing, he was asking questions, he was trying to find out how did these churches get to this condition? And he learned, he learned by the reports of the people who had been hurt by the indiscreet zeal of James Davenport. He learned that those who labor as evangelists, even if they have the best intentions, are in peculiar danger of mistaking false for true zeal and of being betrayed into great indiscretions. Nettleton led many congregationalist revivals in New England in the first decade of his ministry. Operating in contrast to many modern evangelists, he would often move into a community for several weeks. He didn't just spend two days there like Whitfield and he was off to the next place. Or months. 
and study the spiritual condition of the people before attempting any revival work. His preaching was said to be largely doctrinal, but always practical. Nettleton often filled the pulpits of churches where there was no pastor present. This allowed him to engage in the pastoral care for the people. This practice is typically absent in modern evangelists' ministries. He's talking about these itinerants in those days who were going from place to place. Well, who would that be? Charles Finney and his followers. He witnessed early in his ministry the problems that can result from a pastor who feels as though he is competing with an evangelist. He also would sometimes refuse to preach in a church. This is so good. This is this discernment is so good. And this is what made Nettleton so special as an itinerant that he would not preach in a place if he thought that his being there was going to take any thing away from the pastor. He did not want the people to look to him as their leader. He was there to help. He, The churches that Nettleton labored in, unlike Finney, were always the better for his being there. If you believe you're called to the ministry and you are called just to visit a place, that church should be the better for your presence, not the worse for it. And Nettleton figured that out very quickly. So a letter from Alvin Hyde. I'm moving on. I won't spend a lot of time here, but this history is very interesting. Hyde wrote to probably William Sprague, and he wrote, in compliance with your particular request, I now commence a concise narrative of the work of God's Holy Spirit in reviving religion at several periods among the people of my pastoral charge. Conscious of the many defects which have been attached to my ministry, I engage in the service with diffidence, and yet I humbly hope with a sincere desire that the great head of the church may thereby be glorified. What shall I communicate? What I shall communicate will be a simple and unvarnished statement of fact which my own eyes have seen and my own ears have heard, taken from minutes which I made at the time they occurred. In the summer of 1821, there was an evident increase of solemnity in the church and congregation, and some individuals were known to be anxious for their souls. This appearance continued for several weeks under the same means of grace which the people had long enjoyed, but none were found who rejoiced in hope. The church often assembled together for prayer, and in the month of August, we observed a day of fasting and prayer. The meeting house was well filled, and deep solemnity pervaded the congregation. The hearts of many seemed to burn within them, and there were increasing indications from the rising cloud of an abundance of rain. We began to hear from one another a new language, a language of submission of the God. At this interesting crisis, a Reverend Asa held Nettleton spent a few days with us. He preached five sermons to overflowing assemblies and his labors were remarkably blessed. What a blessing. Edward Dor Griffin. George Whitfield, Asa Hell Nettleton, maybe Daniel Rowland over in Wells and so on that God greatly used these men and he had his men for whatever reason. It just seemed that where they were going and laboring, the Holy Spirit was bringing revival. It was that rich of a time, but why he chose certain people. He only says, I have chosen the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to confound the mighty that no flesh may glory in his presence. But Nettleton had the blessing that where he was going in those days, revival was coming there also. So, conversions became frequent, sometimes several in a day, and the change of the feelings and views of the subjects was wonderful. At the suggestion of Mr. Nettleton, I now instituted what are called inquiring meeting. And remember, this is so important in Nettleton's ministry. Finney used something they called the anxious seat or the anxious bent. Nettleton would have a separate meeting for people under awakening so he could go person to person and spend about five minutes with each one and had just such discernment he would know how to at least give them hope or point them on the way. But I I have a caveat about that and I'll get into it. These meetings as I have found them to be convenient were continued through this revival and I have ever since made use of them as occasion required, sometimes weekly and for many months in succession. The church have always been requested to assemble for prayer, 
in the upper room of a large schoolhouse in which the inquiry and meetings have been attended. While the church have been engaged in prayer, sufficient number of the brethren have been with the pastor to converse, so he would talk to them in a low voice, with every individual in the inquiring room, given opportunity for each one to make known the state of its feelings. This has often been followed by instruction addressed to them all and adapted specifically to their cases and by prayer. The ruined and helpless state of sinners, the exceeding wickedness of their hearts, and the awful consequences of neglecting the great salvation have been explicitly stated on these occasions. What does that mean? Neglecting the great salvation. He would address their depravity and say that their inability was their own fault because it was a moral inability. Because it was aimed against the Savior. And so they were culpable. He didn't excuse them. You are guilty for your own rejecting of Christ. But being acquainted with the nature in terms of the gospel, repentance toward God and faith in him who came to seek and to save that which was lost, have been enjoined upon them as their immediate duty. It is your immediate duty to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always has to be said. If you give counsel to them after they are awakened, that's a different thing. But immediate duty is to repent and believe on Christ. And the fact that they don't do so makes them guilty because it is a obstinacy that is seated in the affections and the will. No language can describe the deep feeling which has been manifested at some of these meetings. So Heman Humphrey, president of the college at Amherst, writing in 1832, given an account, says, my dear brother, I'm glad to learn that you have consented to the publication of your sermons on the all-important subject of revival. So these guys were writing to William Sprague. Remember I told you William Sprague was an early student at Princeton Theological Seminary, became a pastor, and in the year 1832 wrote a book called Lectures on Revival. And in the appendix of that book, there were a number of letters that he requested from people in, living at that time who were experiencing these revivals to give some report of it. I send you such brief sketches of what I have myself witnessed and times are refreshing from the presence of the Lord as the extreme pressure of other duties will permit. Although my experience in this regard falls far below that of some of my brethren, I desire always to retain a grateful remembrance of what my eyes have seen and my ears have heard. While I confine my remarks chiefly to the character and fruits of the revivals which had taken place in this college Amherst since I became connected with it. In 1823, I cannot persuade myself wholly to pass over the memorable summer of 1821 in the church of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which was in under my pastoral care. There had been large additions to the church. They were coming in in the preceding year under the blessed effusions of the Holy Spirit, and I did not, I am ashamed to say, expect to see greater things than these. That's what we want God to do. I'm expecting some things, but I want you to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think in this revival, and we will not let you go in prayer until we see the fruits of our prayers. Oh God, and until people and pastors and churches get desperate again for revival, is it a hard thing to wonder why God and His Spirit isn't coming back then? They understood the connection between the effectual fervent prayer of the congregation and the Holy Spirit coming in His manifest presence. Mm -hmm. I have always described it chiefly to His earnest and pungent preaching that the attention of many was soon called up and that in the course of a few weeks we were all constrained to exclaim what God has Right. It was indeed a year of the right hand of the Most High. Never were such tokens of the presence and power of God seen before in that community. And yet there was very little animal excitement, and I explained that before. These feelings that we have that are in common with animals, and the reason he says there's not a lot of animal excitement, not that feelings in and of themselves are bad, but we don't judge of the validity of the revival by the amount of the animal feelings that are being seen and are present. Even at the height of the revival, the sinner would often turn pale and tremble under the awakening and searching truths of the gospel, but there were no 
outcries, either in our public or more private meetings, no attempts to enlist the passion. They didn't try to work up the passions. They didn't try to work up the animal feeling. They knew that the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone could take the means of grace and apply it to the sinner for his conversion. We're not going to stir these things up. That's the difference between the true revival and what was going on under Finney's ministry and I fear under the Asbury revival that was taking place on the other side of this state. If we can work up this feeling, if we can work up this contemporary praise, that's a revival. And they understood, no, it isn't. The object was to make the object was to make the impenitent feel that they were under a righteous condemnation that they had destroyed themselves, that their hearts were entirely alienated from God, that in this alienation lay their guilt and not their excuse, that of course they were bound to repent and become reconciled to God without a moment's delay, that nevertheless so desperate was the depravity of their hearts that nothing short of the power of the Holy Ghost would ever subdue it, and that God was under no obligation to exert that Power. Selfish cries for mercy that are only selfish have no real contrition in them. And God in his sovereignty may or may not save an awakened sinner under this amount of terror that he does so is his mercy. We, it doesn't matter how much we cry. It doesn't matter how much we use the means of grace. As Jonathan Edwards says in a narrative of surprising conversions, God is under no obligation to listen to these selfish cries until the heart yields itself to Christ, which the Holy Spirit must originate. I say that because these men in their counseling for years, brethren, for years I've had to deal with this, was saying they were teaching preparationism. No, they were not. They knew that they could use the means of grace, they could pray, they could attend sermons, they could meet with other brethren as a means possibly to the end of their conversion. And God ordinarily blesses the means that he himself has appointed. He's not obligated to, but ordinarily in the use of those means even if they start with selfish motives God may be pleased to show mercy what's the case of that that we have in the Bible were the Ninevites crying out to God in Jonah 3 out of contrition and brokenness of heart no they were crying out because they knew that in 40 days they would be destroyed it was selfish crying but God, in his mercy, may take the mercenary motives and selfish prayers of awakened sinners and do for them what they cannot do for themselves. That's the language of Thomas Boston in human nature in his fourfold state. Who knows that while you're using the means of grace, you're praying. You're reading the Bible. You're listening to sermons. Who knows that while you do what you cannot do, but you're doing in the means God may do for you what you cannot do for yourself. The glory of salvation and regeneration is of God, but it is in the use of means, even if those means at first are employed by the awakened sinner by selfish mercenary motives. For 10 or 11 years, Asahel Nettleton had been laboring almost constantly in revivals of religion. During this time, he preached generally three sermons on the Sabbath and several during the week, besides spending much time in visiting from house to house and conversing with individuals on the concerns of their souls. How could he endure such accumulated labors was a mystery to many. Undoubtedly, his constitution was so impaired by these labors as to render it impossible to recover from the shock of disease by which he was attacked in 1822. So, Nettleton died in 1842. 44. In 1822, he contracted typhoid fever. They called it typhus then. And there are three different kinds. I looked this up, but each one is from a different insect. And they didn't have the cures that we have in our day. And it had a shock to his physical constitution that Nettleton never really recovered for the rest of his life. And I believe, and if Lord willing, next time, as I hope, we'll get into the confrontation between Nettleton and Finney. And by the way, upon the doctrinal dissertation on that, which I was reading last night, there was a conference between Nettleton and Finney called the New Lebanon Conference in New York. But 
I believe the reason that Nettleton did not want to get drawn into the battle with Penny is because his body just couldn't take it. He, was, he wasn't well for the rest of his days and why God allows that to happen so that God would receive the praise, not Nettleton. But Nettleton possessed peculiar skill in presenting truth to the minds of men and laboring in revivals of religion. It will be admitted by most who are at all acquainted with his history. During the protracted period of conviction through which he passed before his reconciliation to God, so Nettleton was under awakening himself for 10 months, the burden on the back, not alleviated, and the slough of despond, he finally enters the wicked gate 10 months later, but during that 10 months, it gave him an opportunity to examine the innate depravity of the human heart. So it says that he obtained a knowledge of the human heart which few possess. He could trace the secret windings of human depravity. He understood the refuges of lies to which sinners are prone to resort, and he knew how to meet and to answer the various excuses by which they attempted to shield themselves from blame. I'm not to blame. I can't help it if I'm depraved, and he would shoot down those excuses. He had an experimental acquaintance with the great truths of the gospel, which enabled him not only to present them with clearness to the minds of others, but to press them home upon their consciences as manners of everlasting moment. His deep religious experience enabled him to ascertain the precise state of mind of different individuals and to adapt his instructions to them in the inquiry room to their particular circumstances. When an impression was made upon the mind, he was careful to follow it up, well knowing the various ways in which religious impressions are liable to be effaced, or they lose the convictions. And what is best adapted to deepen and purpose perpetuate them. The question has often been asked, what was the secret of Nettleton's success? In answering this question, we must not overlook the fact that God acts as a sovereign and pours out his spirit when and where and in what measure he pleases. No man ever more firmly believed this fact or acted more habitually under the influence of this belief than Dr. Nettleton. He was perfectly aware that all human means are utterly powerless unless made effectual by the agency of the Holy Spirit. He did not rely on his own strength. He knew that he was an earthen vessel and that when any success attended his labors, the excellency of the power was of God and not of him. It was his firm belief of this truth powerfully operating on his mind and leading him to place no dependence on his own efforts, but to look to God in humble, earnest, persevering, and confident prayer, which constituted one principal reason of his signal success. If the question then be asked why Dr. Nettleton was so much more successful in winning souls, what was the secret? In answering this question, we, I, I think I'm repeating that, that God acts as a sovereign. But the success of Dr. Nettleton was not in every respect like that of George Whitfield. Whitfield's power was chiefly in the pulpit. His eloquence was overpowering. And great multitudes were sometimes awakened by a single sermon. Asahel Nettleton did not expect such effects from a single effort in the pulpit. His success was a combined effect of preaching in the church and in the lecture room and a private conversation as preaching was always solemn and impressive and sometimes in a high degree eloquent. It was more instructive and addressed more to the conscience and less to the passions than that of George. So I already talked about his sickness. I just want to read a few paragraphs to uh, give you an idea what it was like under one of these revivals and how he counseled them. But I need to repeat something that I quoted from Jonathan Edwards in a narrative of surprising conversions. What do you do? You're a pastor. You're talking to these people that were awakened. You know that God must sovereignly save them. What do you tell them? And Edwards was just such a master at explaining this. Quote, Whatever minister has a like occasion to deal with souls and a flock under such circumstances as this was in the last year, I cannot but think he will soon find himself under a necessity greatly to insist upon it with them. That God is under no manner of obligation to show mercy to any natural man whose heart is not turned to God. And that a man can challenge nothing either in absolute justice or by free promise from anything he does before he has believed 
believed on Jesus Christ, or has true repentance begun in him. It appears to me, said Edwards, that if I had taught those who came to me under trouble, anxiety, awakening, I'm using synonyms to get the point across, if he had told them anything else, I should have taken a most direct course utterly to undo them, end quote. Nettleton said, a number came to me with joyful countenance while others were bored down with grief. It is this night, just one week since the first instance of hopeful conversion occurred, and now about 30 appeared to be subjects of grace. Many of these it was afterwards found obtained relief on the day and some a few months after I left them. This was a memorial, memorable day, for when they afterwards came together to give a relation of their Christian experience, we found that some on that day retired into the groves and fields and some into their chambers and closets to cry for mercy. I have sent thought that the effect of my leaving them as I did. Now this is so profound. Don't miss this and I'll emphasize it. Sometimes when he was counseling the awakening and they didn't get relief all at once, he would excuse himself and leave them there shut up to God, between them and God, seeking God for mercy. And this is why. I have sent thought that the effect of my leaving them as I did in the advanced stages of their conviction was evidently beneficial. It drove them from all human dependence, distressing as it is. And it is to a pastor. If you got people and they're this kind of awakening and you leave them because you know only God can save them if they're depending too much upon him to give them comfort and not God, it drove them from all human dependence, distressing as it is and cruel as it may seem. It is necessary for them to feel that no arm but God can help them. The question is often asked, why is it that convictions of some sinners are so much greater than those of others? I answer, I don't know. The sinner's distress does not always appear to be in exact proportion to his crimes. Now that's interesting because some people that are converted don't have this kind of awakening who may have come from a very, very profligate background. And yet if you read Charles Spurgeon's conversion testimony, which it takes me about 90 minutes to narrate, and he was raised in a Christian home and he was dandled on his mom's knee while she was reading him Joseph Elaine's Alarm to the Unconverted and a call to the Unconverted by Richard Baxter. God is sovereign. It doesn't matter if outwardly to appearance these people have been raised right and show some signs of attention. God is totally sovereign in how much conviction that some people have prior to their conversion. I believe that I never got a real full assurance for three and a half years because God knew what I needed, what I needed to read, how I needed to examine myself for me to be of any use to other people going through this like David Phillips. So let me read these three last paragraphs of this revival because it's so amazing. May 20th, 1820. This was a solemn day throughout this village. Mr. L., a young lawyer who had been anxious for a few days and who had retired to rest in my chamber, came to my bedside early this morning in distress. He sat down to breakfast with us, and while at the table heard the tidings that another of his mates, his friends, had found the Savior the last night. He instantly left the table and retired to my chamber. Sometime after, I entered the chamber and found him prostrate on the floor, crying out for mercy. While he thus continued, waxing worse and worse, a number came up to see him, but he seemed to take no notice of them. Not paying attention, this is between me and God. And continued pleading for mercy. About 10 o'clock, whether with a new heart, I cannot say. I only record the fact he came downstairs expressing his joy that he had found the Savior. May 22nd. This evening attended a meeting for inquirers, and all things considered, it was a most distressing and painful scene hitherto witnessed in this revival. They're under awakening. Many of them haven't yet got relief and found hope in Christ. Unexpectedly, a number who had never before attended, had never been in this inquiry meeting, came from the region of solemnity above described. Some came four or five miles and crowded the meeting and threw it into a scene of awful distress. 
The distress was so great and the suppressed sighs and sobs became so loud that I could scarcely hear my own voice. One or two found relief on the spot and some lost their strength so that we were obligated to help them out of the chamber. It was with the utmost difficulty that I could prevail on them to separate. Look, it's really, really getting late. You really, really need to go home. And he couldn't get them to separate. He couldn't get them to go. They're under too much fear. They need the burden on their back lifted. Some would start to retire, but the cry of distress, I would hear others crying still in the room, and it would call them back again. Why am I going home? These people are under distress. I want to be where they are. I want to observe what's going on with them. I need to have my own burden alleviated, and I want to see if other people are getting their burden alleviated. I don't dare go home. There's going to be no comfort for me there. It was almost impossible to prevail on them to retire. At length, all retired but one who in great agony tarried through the night. But many who came from a distance remained overnight in the neighborhood. That's May 22nd, an inquiry meeting. And Nettleton said things about this that you won't find. And he didn't keep a big journal. There wasn't a lot of reports of what happened under his ministry, but the facts that we know are so interesting and we need to learn from them. May 29th, so this is an inquiry meeting May 22nd. May 29th, he said, let's have another one. Let's talk to people who haven't gotten comfort yet. This evening met nearly 200 in a meeting for inquirers. This meeting was anticipated by many with secret dread. They're afraid to go in there. They don't want to repeat what happened just a few days before because the distress was so alarming. The cries were so pungent that they were afraid of being in that scene again because it's agonizing. That happens in a revival. Jonathan Edwards sermon. God makes men sensible of their misery before he reveals his love and mercy. And he may not reveal his love and mercy just like that. Sometimes he allows a person to be emptied of his self-righteousness for a few days first. Some Christians, doubtless among the rest, who were present and witnessed the scene of distress at the last inquiry meeting were heard to say that they dreaded to attend this evening. They could hardly endure the thought of passing through such a scene of distress a second time. Now this is so telling. Nettleton and I can truly say that for the first time, I felt the same reluctance. He didn't want to go through it either. But to the astonishment of all, instead of an anxious, we had a joyful meeting. Most of those in such distress at our last meeting for inquirers had found relief and were exceeding joyful. What an astonishing change in one week. I felt that it could hardly be possible. We, lost, we had lost our anxiety and had a little else to do but to render united thanks to God for what he had done. New Haven, September 7th, 1820. My dear friends, the moment I take my to address you, I imagine myself seated in the midst of that same dear circle. He's writing to them, and he remembers what it was like to be in their midst during that revival. Every name and every countenance appears familiar. The inquiry meeting, the crowded assembly, the heaving sigh, the solemn stillness, and the joyful countenance awaken all the tender sensibilities of my heart. My dear friend, no friendship, no attachment in this world is equal to those attachments, those friendships, those bonds that we have in a real revival. Jonathan Edwards, and I'll close with this. Quote, narrative of surprising conversion. Some persons continue wandering in such a kind of a labyrinth ten times as long as others before their own experience will convince them of their insufficiency. And so it appears not to be their own experience only, but the convincing influence of God's Holy Spirit with their experience that attains the effect. God has of late abundantly showed that he does not need to wait to have men convinced by long and often repeated fruitless trials. For in multitudes of instances, he has made a shorter work of it. He has so awakened and convinced persons, consciences, and made them sensible of their exceeding great vileness and given them such a sense of its wrath against sin as quickly overcame all their vain self-confidence and bore them down into the dust before a holy and a righteous God. This, this is enlightening by Edward Dorr Griffin, so I'll quote it too. People under awakening that don't get relieved immediately. It was not uncommon for the hearts of the convicted as 
their hearts rose against God to rise also against the pastors. It's interesting, there was an account, and the first book I got of the extended stories of the Great Awakening was John Gillies from England, historical collections and accounts of revivals, and he got his accounts from a Boston pastor named Thomas Prince, who created a magazine on the revivals that were going on. And one of the pastors said that the people came up to me after their conversion, after the awakening, when they had come to Christ, and he said, I had many people confess to me that before their conversion, they secretly hated me. And God subdued their hearts, changed their hearts, converted them, and they were coming up to the pastor to say, this was the enmity that I was holding inside, and God has relieved me and saved me from it. In some instances, the emotions were plainly discoverable and in one particularly, the subject was so incensed as to break out in bitter expressions, but a few hours before, being relieved from the anguish of a deeply troubled spirit. Such things seem to be satisfying evidence that mere conviction alone no more ameliorates the heart. Conviction. Legal conviction. Not evangelical conviction. Legal conviction. I'm going to hell. Has no power to ameliorate the heart. It cannot change the governing disposition, the mind, the heart, and will, but that God alone must do it. So let me read the sentence again. Such things seem to be satisfying evidence that mere conviction, legal conviction, no more can change a heart in this than in the other world, but serves rather to draw out its corruptions and to still stronger exercise. What's so interesting about now? You read these old testimonies of people that were converted during the revivals and others. And what's missing in many testimonies you read in our day when people are under this kind of conviction, God allows them to go through this under legal conviction and may withhold his mercy because he wants, and I believe he did this in my case, he wants you to understand the innate enmity and hostility by nature you hold against him. So that you understand if that enmity, if that hostility is changed to holy affection and love to God, that's the same miracle of grace that created the world. But they don't know that by nature, and God is pleased sometimes to make a person feel it. And then when they have that mercy, they more desire it. It's interesting that the Puritan Richard Sibb says in the book, The Bruise Read, many become apostates after because they were never bruised reeds before their conversion. And sometimes God allows a person to be bruised and broken, cry out to him that they would realize amazing grace or in the words words of Charles Wesley which are so good as well and brethren I don't think we hear a lot about this in day but if revival comes we have to recognize what's going on here if we're going to be useful at all we know we're converted if we want to help people under awakening we have to realize do not be shocked even if you tell them their immediate duty is to repent and believe on the lord jesus christ do not be shocked if at first they cannot react to that they don't know that by nature god is pleased to open their eyes to see what is in them innately and then when the pardon comes and they're aware of a new disposition they will realize this is what god did i couldn't have originated this myself it's only got one more sentence this preparative of conviction well who's doing the preparing the sinner is the sinner preparing himself london baptist confession chapter 9 paragraph 3 neither can he prepare himself there too but he doesn't know that by nature he thinks he can he thinks if enough crying enough reading enough fellowship enough listening and sermons that he can now prepare himself that god sees in him the disposition that is required of god for god to show mercy no absolutely not nothing that the unregenerate do it can be any preparative that now that this has happened to you now you're ready to receive mercy the only purpose that this conviction shows is his utter inability to prepare himself for mercy which he does not know by nature so that God would get the glory when the salvation comes. The sinner's helplessness does not make him meritorious. The 
of salvation because it is self-produced, but it does make him a suitable subject for the exercise of God's unmerited compassion in regenerating grace. Brethren, I emphasize this because I've read so many of these reports of people who are under an awakening like Christian with a burden on his back. Having a burden on your back doesn't prepare you to get through the wicked gate. Going through this law of despond did not prepare Christian to get through the wicked gate. He knocked and goodwill was willing to open the door. That's the only thing. Knock, ask, seek. And God delights to show mercy, but he wants to empty you first. That's a common way that we don't hear of in our day. And I'll open it up for questions. Michael? Um, okay, so one thing I was wondering, when preachers like Nettleton travel church to church preaching, was that something that was a practice uh, primarily during times of revival, or was that common for preachers to do things like that for certain preachers? And also, in what other ways was uh, evangelism in general different? In well, an itinerant evangelist usually was marked that a church did not send him out, that he was kind of his, a maverick, okay? So it wasn't a good thing. And if there was a fault in Whitfield's ministry, though he said that he was still of the Church of England, he didn't have the proper oversight that he should have. But I want to emphasize, Nettleton was an itinerant, not by choice. He was going from place to place and was being used. Nettleton was waiting for God to open the door for him to go in the mission field. But in many, many cases, when people saw, set out to be itinerants, they set out to be evangelists and were not under the oversight of the church, you could see aberrations and things like that happening. And in the Great Awakening, the purest revivals that I read about, and there's some great ones that I have read. Uh, the Presbyterian Jonathan Dickinson. Dickinson was the first president of the College of New Jersey, Presbyterian pastor. That happened under his oversight as a pastor. If you read, for example, the book called Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress in the United Kingdom, all of those happened in local assemblies. Most of the stories of revival that got entered within the Connecticut Evangelical Magazines were revivals going on within local churches. Now, sometimes people like Edward Dorr Griffin would be invited to different places to preach. They weren't full-time itinerants. Edwards wasn't. Edwards was requested to come to Enfield, Connecticut uh, to give the pastor a break. The pastor himself also would go from place to place, and that was Eliezer Wheelock, who providentially founded Dartmouth College. I believe Eliezer Wheelock was the one that picked up Jonathan and his coach and took him to the revival. But it's always safest to assume if anybody has some kind of ministry, he can be used of God, but it's always safest. It is always the right way for him to be under the oversight of a local assembly and to be accountable to them. There were the exceptions and God used them, but Finney really wasn't as accountable as he needed to be, and he had caused some concerns. You know, he he basically, uh, you could say he lied, because to get his Presbyterian license in 1821, he had to tell the Synod of the Presbyterian denomination that he was a part of that he adhered to the Westminster Confession, and he didn't. He really didn't even care for the Westminster Confession, and Finney once said that revival isn't a miracle. If you use a philosophy and you address the passions of men, they can be converted without a special work of the Holy Spirit, because that's so how much little Finney really understood that the Holy Spirit must convert and the Holy Spirit alone, and maybe we'll get into that when we discuss Finney next week or whenever we do that. Anybody else? Well, remember, when, when we define assurance, if you look at the confession, it talks that the assurance is an infallible hope. The infallibility is in the promises you 
embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You submit to Him the promises infallible that you will be saved. But examining other people to receive them into the church, we submit a testimony and so on, always has to have some element of the judgment of charity because we cannot infallibly determine just by a testimony. But we can be pretty sure if their life bears fruits, our Lord said by their fruits you shall know them but that cannot be an infallible decision and so the presbyterians argument against us the pato baptist is well you're not infallible you believe in believers communion but you have people that turn out to be hypocrites but that's in spite of our carefulness we're not creating the atmosphere that will produce hypocrites if you say to a child because it has been baptized as a child that doesn't even have the cognitive faculties to be able to discern what is being said of them and you tell them that they're in a covenant you're creating a hypocrite because you're giving them a pronouncement that the Bible doesn't give. 